Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third-tier markets to large 100-plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income, the 100th episode. Dude, this is freaking exciting. Can you believe we've been doing 100 episodes? Wow. All the guests we've had on, yeah. the amazing response we've gotten from this podcast. Just Hundreds off. of thousands of oh downloads. I mean, yeah. it's, it's awesome. So um, cool. And, you know, for our 100th episode, we're really focusing here on doing something a little different. So I wanted the hundredth episode to be directly answering questions from all our listeners. Um, you know, we've loved our correspondence with everybody getting the information out. We just think it's awesome. Um, but two, for the hundredth episode, we're doing a big giveaway. So the big giveaway is we are giving away two free tickets to our self-storage income convention in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho on the resort. We have 300 people coming. Brandon Turner speaking. We have the world's largest privately held storage facilities. Uh, CEO speaking and founder. Um, we have a lineup of some pretty incredible um, speakers. So Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets, uh, of course, I'll be there. I'll be speaking, um, be obviously. Sweet. And yeah, it's a three-day thing at the resort. We have um, on the lake, so it's on a big lake in the mountains. And we have uh, dinner cruises. We have uh, big events. It's this is a high-end event. That that was actually the purpose of this, right? I mean, mm -hmm. when we're looking at self-storage income, whether it was the podcast, whether it was our other content, whether it was the book. This whole like educational aspect, um, looking back on it, it's interesting because the number one focus I think everybody had when talking about it and everything is, you know, how are you going to monetize? Like, mm -hmm. how are you going to monetize? When are you putting out courses? What are you going to do? Right. Yeah. And it was, we monetize through self-storage. Our content drives deal flow and investors. Um, and that's been something that we've wanted to hold true to, right? We didn't ever want to be pitching anything. Like it, I want to have completely open content. I am a hundred percent transparent. Anybody can ask us anything. And that's kind of the culture of it all and everything mm -hmm. me and you've been doing. And we wanted to keep it that way. And a hundred episodes now, um, the YouTube, everything else we have and our event that's coming up here in Three months now? Yeah, three months. Wow, that's coming up fast. <laughs> yeah, get ready, I mean, dude. it's at <laughs> the um, end of September. So it's that last week of, of September. But we wanted quality and transparency to be the number one thing. I wanted it to be, this is not 
an event where you're getting sold anything to. Mm-hmm. This is not an event. Nope. This is a 100% networking, education, right? And quality. Quality. Yeah. This is going to be high end. This is not going to be done simple, small, or cheap because that's not mm-hmm. how we do things. And that sets the standard. And that sets the standard in everything we've done. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really, really proud of that. Um, I love it. I'm glad people, like, I, I can't remember what, what we're up to now as far as attendees, but. Um, we had very limited seating. Yeah, and, uh, it's, it's very. Even more limited now. Yeah, yeah. So we've got, <laughs> two, we're doing two giveaways for this. We're also doing one on social media. You have to follow me on social media to get that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exciting. I mean, I have, I honestly, I haven't even checked the numbers or anything on the event because last time I checked, we were basically full. So I, I, if you're following me like online, everything, I stopped basically talking about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is your chance, get free tickets. And what we want you to do is help us get exposure. So if you're listening to this podcast, take the podcast, right? You can take a picture of it, put the link online, um, tag self storage income and tag me at AJ Osborne. Um, you can also tag Connor, um, tag us on Instagram, um, or it could be Twitter too, or, um, Facebook. I don't get on Facebook, but I, I think that, that would be fine. Uh, so you, <laughs> could, say, you can find me. I haven't Twitter. been on there for like ever. Uh, so, but tag us on social media that helps yep. us get our exposure out and share with everything we're trying to do. Yep. And so, yeah, we're excited about this guys. This Super is, excited. this is great. Anybody that shares it the hundredth episode, um, from there, we, uh, will compile all that and pick a winner here in the next, uh, few weeks, but very soon hundredth episode come and hang out with us. Yes. I'm yeah, so excited cool. about it. Um, we're actually, it's funny. Cause even for like the inner circle, we're doing the day before where we're going to go out and look at, I have facilities there that I've built, expanded, um, and acquired. So we're actually going to look and go do some tours of those facilities and walk through how everything was done. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to be great. We have a huge lineup of people coming. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And for me, this is what investing, this is what this is all about. It's all our opportunities. And I, and I say this a lot, all our opportunities that have ever come, all our success that has ever come has happened through working with other people, whether that's my team, whether that's having people like Connor, whether that's having our broker relations, um, that's how it works. I don't, investing too often, we don't think that's a people's game. We we discount the people portion. We're looking at numbers and the asset, um, but dude, everything everything is a people's game. Everything. Is. There's I don't think there's anything that you're ever going to do at scale or well that's not going to involve other people. I, I think that's a, a huge misconception that I know you've talked a lot about on uh, this podcast and the AJ podcast. And um, yeah, if you think, if you think you don't need people to do stuff that like you're, you're not going to get anywhere. Nope. And I say it all the time, but success doesn't happen on an Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think lots of times, even, even me. So when I, when I started to do more publicly, um, speaking things, whether it was podcast, where I was actually speaking um, at large events, whether it was my book or whatnot, that was hard because I had a lot of self-doubt and I was like, well, do I really have value or anything to work? And it's mm-hmm. funny how it's those those things inside us, that mental status that actually prevents us from moving forward when everybody's just trying to figure it out. And right, the more people right. you help and the more you get out there, 
everybody gets better. And self-storage is a wonderful industry like this. So I came from the insurance brokerage industry where we sold and competition is crazy. You are not friends with your competitors, right? <laughs> like it is, we are out to kill them. Yeah. It is not something. You, you want them gone, right? Yeah. That is not how self-storage is. It wasn't when we came in and it's not. I know all the people in our area. I know when people are building mm -hmm. because in self-storage, if I'm in a market and one facility is doing bad outside purely just poor management, things like that, it usually means the rest of the facilities are doing bad. So if you're getting into storage, I hope that I'm giving you resources to be successful right? because you inherently make me successful by doing that. I need rates to rise. I need good quality, good customers, right? If we're going into markets and people are just coming in, they're not talking, they're overbuilding markets. Mm -hmm. It takes a couple bad players to oversaturate and destroy markets. So for me, this information helps us have opportunity, but it also helps bring this industry in which I'm passionate about to the forefront, move these, move these assets up, bring them out, have cities, communities like our asset, which was a challenge. So a lot of people don't know, but when self-storage was like, when I got into self-storage, it was a dirty asset. Like it was, people viewed it like a junkyard. Mm -hmm. Cities did not want it. They're like, you're going to destroy our community. Right. And this has caused us problems or whatever it may be. Now cities have totally come around mm -hmm. because of good players in this industry. When we go in and build things, we do a great job. There's a huge demand for it and need, and we can work with cities now. That's a big change for us in this industry. And that was due to people working together and players in the industry delivering good quality products. Mm -hmm. Cities became more open. There's more opportunity. So yeah, well, we just had a really awesome episode with uh, that's going to actually be coming out after this episode's released uh, with Pam, your your good yes. friend Pam, and and we talk a lot about that that industry uh, cohesiveness, you know, between people that normally would be seen as competitors. Where I mean, she was talking about somebody that was a competitor of hers in a market, well, like quote unquote competitor. Yeah, that uh, she had some issues at a facility, and that person, that other operator, sent someone to her facility because she couldn't get there in time yep. to take care of her facility for her. Um, so it is, and it's we've done an the amazing same. industry. We, we have yeah. a, um, I have a, it's funny, it's a competitor, but they're actually even business partners. They built and they're uh, half a mile, not even away from one of my facilities. And one of the, the owner had um, some health issues, right? And he needed to leave the state. He needed to go do it. And it, it was really scary. And mm. so we called him up and, you know, it was, and I meant this very sincerely, dude, we can literally take over and manage this for you. Like you mm -hmm. let us know if you're having problems, my employees will go over there and they'll help run your facility in any way you need it to. You just don't find that in a lot of industries. It just doesn't <laughs> like, exist. No. <laughs> and uh, it's incredible. It's, it is. And it's wonderful. So yeah. that's why we at this hundredth episode, this is why we do what we do, why we've loved it. The opportunity from sharing with you guys to us has been incredible. So many listeners of ours, our investors have brought us deals. Now we're partners with. Um, so thank you. We appreciate it. 
We really do. No, it's been amazing just to see the response to uh, from you guys. And again, like AJ's talking about, we we launched all this stuff with the idea that we wanted to get good information out there to help the industry and help all you guys that are, are either storage veterans or people that are just getting into the industry and uh, in working together, continuing that relationship with other owner operators and investors and everything else. And uh, just the, the response that we've gotten, we weren't really sure what it was going to end up looking like, but uh, it's just been incredible. Uh, we've made a lot of really great friends, connected with some incredible people. Uh, I mean, we've been doing this for a year and a half, a couple yeah. of years, something like that yeah. at this point, yep. uh, really getting all this content out. We've really hammered down on the uh, the YouTube content, which is yes. just looking incredible. Oh, absolutely. Um, loving that. Yeah. So just the response across all the platforms has just been so crazy. And that's all thanks to you guys out there listening and supporting this podcast, reaching out to AJ, reaching out to us and connecting and and letting us know what you guys want to hear and, and uh, what's going to be beneficial to you, which is going to be a huge portion of this podcast podcast today. today. That's Q and A's. Q and A's. And when we look at this podcast and everything, it's important to know that, you know, obviously we put a ton of work into this. Connor has put a ton of work into this as well as YouTube. And that was, you know, forever, not even compensated work. It was weekends, nights. And the first, you know, few years of this, I was putting tens of thousands of dollars into this a year to make sure it was good quality. Um, and we hope that people would like it. We hope that it would have been receptive and, in no way, shape, or form do I even remotely regret that or anything. Mm-hmm. It's been fantastic, and we love doing it. So that's enough on that. We get all reminiscent here, getting a little choked up on the 100th episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so with that, though, let's get back down to business. Let's do it, man. Today's podcast, we are covering, we have a ton of questions from everybody from online that oh, they amazing. have asked and and we got Connor here has got a whole list yeah. and it's dedicated to answer all of your questions and we're going to compile it all right here. So Connor gets to pick the questions. We get to talk about it and we'll go from there. Perfect. So we're just going to dive right into it. Um, this first question, how did you fund such a large acquisition? This is in uh, respect to our project, our large conversion project right, right. now. So this is a great question. When, when we got started, um, when funding small projects, that was done from savings. That was done from my father's and I's um, commissions that we got from sales. Okay. So we were putting together, you know, 200,000. Um, and we would buy properties, then we would turn them around. This, I, it, this is important to me, this background of these self-funded deals, as in we had to scale, we had to go slowly. Um, we didn't know any different. We didn't know how to do it any different, but it actually set the stage for our entire business model because what it meant was our assets had to yield a huge amount because the revenue had to pay for everything. Mm-hmm. So it, it was, there was no business without that revenue. There was no right. fees. There was no, there was nothing. If it didn't pay for it, we couldn't hire. If it didn't pay for it, we couldn't do anything. And then two, we had to have money to put back in. So we also needed the money to then reinvest if we wanted to grow. Mm-hmm. So for years, we didn't take anything, right. anything out. I mean, right. we're talking a decade. Me and my dad took no money and put money and compounded it, um, which was great. I'm happy we did it. Um, looking back, I have zero regrets. 
But with that said, I may have um, started working with other people in real estate and through either funding or syndicating sooner. I just mm-hmm. didn't know or understand those things. This asset, once you get into the big ones, things these are key. This is how we do everything. So we syndicate, meaning we have investors that come in with us and buy it. So we needed, what was the total raise for that one? I think it was $4 million. Yeah. 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 It was right 4, four million. And that came from investors. So we had investors plus us, obviously. We put our money into it too. We raised it. Um, we bought the property outright. So we came in and we purchased the whole entire property because this was a conversion. We paid for it in cash. Then we worked with the builders to understand and get the scope of the work that needs to be done. And we go through that whole process, which we'll talk about later. I think there's some questions. Um, Then we get a loan for construction loan. Now, when that construction loan came up, we had to shore up with the amount of money. We need a little more because of the loan requirements. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we got that done. We um, closed on the construction loan and now the builders are in there and building it. And that's typical of how we do things now. That's Mm -hmm. a pretty reminiscent. We, we, we get investors to come alongside our money, right? And that allows our money to do more. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing one or two deals a year, we can do seven or eight deals. Um, and that's been great. Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. Do you want to kind of dive into that just a little bit? Um, and explain how between you guys and your own money, bringing that in, why you do that, and then how you structure that with the investors that also come in. Absolutely. And that's perfect because I think there's actually another question on that that covers that. We can just skip past and cover it all at once. So what happens on this? And before, once again, I didn't know anything about this stuff. I was not a real estate person. We, We focus purely on cash flow. Everybody knows that listens to this. I am revenue centric. How can we optimize the business and how can we drive revenues to make this more profitable? When funding deals, we were putting all our money into one deal and the churn rate of our capital. So how long it took me to turn that deal around, do a value add, pull our money out, and then go do another one. There's a long tail to it, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking years. Right, years, because years of time. we need to build, we got to do whatever whatever that is and increase those revenues. Now we hope that it's much, much faster. Um, but now once we did is we took our deals that we were doing, we pulled our capital out of them. And instead of doing that one, we put our capital alongside investors in the form of a GPLP. And so a general partnership and limited partners. So we are the general partnership right? And the general partnership is the operator. We are the decision maker. We are also the holder of debt. So on every deal that we do, the investors are limited partners. They're not on the debt. They don't hold that risk at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I hold all of it. And uh, well, me, my father and um, my brother-in-law, Sam, who's our other partner. Between us three, we hold all that liability. The LPs come in, which I'm also an LP. So then my capital also comes in as an LP right alongside all the other LPs, the limited partners. And the structure is split between the two. So they have limited risk, but two, they have limited say. And there's two reasons why we do this and why you should too. So it's really important that to understand you can do a partnership or you can do more of this kind of structure. There's other structures you can do, but I'm going to keep it simple to these two because this is really the 
the lion's share of all deals. Mm-hmm. Partnerships, everybody has say. Okay, so everybody's taking risk. Everybody has say. This can be good and bad. Um, there's reasons that it's good because sometimes that allows you to do more, which I've done. Right now, the bad side is all it takes is one partner, and they can screw everything up. And when we're taking on investors, we cannot have inherent risk of one investor screwing things up for everybody, Mm -hmm. the deal, everything like that. So LPs do not have ability to do that. They can't come in and say, I listen, I know what you're trying to do, but I actually want my money now. So I'm going to force you to do a refinance, right? And I'm going to force you to do things or I'm going to force you to sell. They don't do that. In that way, we protect all the limited partners. So they come in and I come in. I'm also a limited partner. We come in and the GP does the work, takes the risk. We come in as the funding part, as the limited partners. We get our return and our cash flows and everything out of the property. The GP gets a split. So they get a split of equity for doing that. So Mm -hmm. I act as both parties. I risk and I'm alongside the limited partners with my capital. Then because I'm the GP doing the deal, I get a section of that profit, right? So 30% of the deal goes to the GP. That's how I get paid. That's how we do our work. If it's a successful project, I make money and I make more money that way. So we're in line with the LPs to drive those revenues and profits. And the more that I can um, generate, the more I can make. Um, We've really liked it so far. It's been a great relationship. And I would suggest it to anyone. If you're doing a partnership, you need to be very aware of the risks. You need to have outlined who has what say, what they I was going to say, do. a solid operating agreement. Yes, very solid operating <laughs> yeah. agreement. Too many cooks in the kitchen can become a problem. And you should limit the number of people in it. It'll make it easier for you. No, 100%. That's awesome, dude. I love that. Super good advice there. Uh, next question here. And I guess... I guess I can le- read the uh, the names. A lot of these came from Instagram here when we did a, uh, a question out on there when AJ threw one out. Uh, that first question just came from I and Lockwood. I and Lockwood. Right okay, on. Next. Lockwood. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that, that is. <laughs> they <laughs> some interesting names, dude. Uh, this next one is HJUC7. Uh, it says, what's the biggest risk or threat of investing in self-storage? I love this question. Yeah. This is my favorite question. Um, And it's my favorite question because there tends to be like a lot of people turn investing into a religion, right? I love to give cryptocurrencies crap, not because I have anything against cryptocurrency or anything, but because they're the people that invest in them, right? They follow it like a religion, like there can be no downside. This is the ultimate for everything. That's just not true with anything. That's not true mm. with self-storage. That's not true with anything. Self-storage is not inherently better than another asset. It's not inherently less risky. So what's important is we identify the risks so we can mitigate. You can never eliminate risks in any investing strategy. They are inherent with the gig, right? So what we do is we identify and we try to control and mitigate. And if we can control risks, that's where we want to be in. You can't control risks if you don't identify. So 
you know, I was even, where was this? Was this in a conference? I, I think it was a conference, but um, somebody was arguing. They're like, self-storage is safer than any other kind of asset, right? And I'm like, okay, well, that's not true, right? We have bonds, right? You have long-term leased-filled um, apartment buildings that are really secured, Um and that also determines greatly with the asset, where it's located, the product type, and the operator. So blanket statements like that really are concerning to me. Um, and even when I brought it up, they're like, oh, you're just like a naysayer or like a non-believer. Once again, like this religion part. And <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Like me? Like yeah. I, there's no bigger advocate of this industry than me, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, but the downsides are, generally speaking, two things. I'm going to talk about controllables and incontrollables and or non-controllables and how, how you should look at them and measure them. First and foremost, the greatest risk I believe in self-storage is self-storage. It's its own worst enemy. The reason being is barriers of entry into self-storage are lower. If I want to go build an apartment building, the amount of capital it takes to do that is multiple times bigger than self-storage multiples. Mm -hmm. So the capital alone, right? Um, especially now. Especially now. No. Uh, if you're looking at multifamily or any other asset class, right? Self-storage is boxes. And two, what goes into them is perceived to be so easy that people will build them. And when you ask them, what made you decide on this location? What made you decide on this project product type? And some of the answers that I get are, well, I own the land and I didn't want to have toilets. Mm -hmm. Right. That's terrifying to me because if that's your investing strategy. <laughs> no analysis. No analysis. You yeah. don't know what revenues do. The only reason you pick that spot is because you own it. You don't know if it's going to be good there. You don't know. Right. And we find that in storage more than we do other asset classes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, when people do this and when there's lower barriers of entry, the asset class is inherently more susceptible to being overbuilt. Mm -hmm. And this is what I see in self-storage. Markets get overbuilt and returns dwindle, and they get overbuilt by new assets that are coming in. So what that means is you have new assets that come in that are delivering a new nice product, but they can't fill up. So they're doing giveaways, they're doing everything free to try to fill in their doors. They get super desperate and it's the whole market starts to unravel. Um, at the end of the day, the operators are the number one differentiator in why self-storage is successful or not. Um, but it's a, it, it, it is close to a commodity. It's an mm -hmm. empty box, right? Now, of course, there's lots of different product types. There's different ways to compete. We're gonna, we could talk about all of that, right? But when we're talking about the fundamentals and, and when you look at a market that gets overbuilt, it's really hard, no matter how good of an operator you are, to overcome that. In fact, markets that get overbuilt, even the best operators like REITs, they can't fight it mm -hmm. because there's just too much. And that creates a downward spiral in rates. The second part is, so though, and, and the reason I think that's controllable is from an aspect when you're looking to get in. I can analyze right. markets, right? Um, the uncontrollable side on that is if you already own it and it happens. 
Um, now, how you work and that the how you control and mitigate that risk would be um, look very high at focus on cash flow, low debt, right? Um, this is not an asset class that you want high debt on. Um, when we invest in them, we want 70-30. Our portfolio in general, though, is 50% debt um, loan to value um, because uh, certain assets wean. And another thing we do is we are diversified in markets, so that doesn't happen. But let's get on to more big picture side. Big picture side is there is a lot of technology coming in that is now attacking self-storage to change the industry. Um, a lot of people decided they can either put their heads in the sand and ignore it. Uh, we took the opposite. And so we um, got into technology. So we found uh, we are founding members of Store Local. We are the largest uh, investor in Tenant Inc. All with this idea that we are a part of the change. We're not ignoring it. So that can be a way to, to um, control and mitigate risk. But now someone that's saying, well, I can't do that, right? You don't need to do it, but you need to be aware of its effects. So what are the tech companies trying to do? Storage on demand. How much market share will that take in control? Okay. So there are disruptors in the industry. Now, my personal belief is that they will take a segment of the market, but like everyone said, Airbnb will kill hotels, right? No, COVID kills hotels. Airbnb didn't kill hotels. Mm -hmm. They softened the market and they changed the market, right? So a percentage of the market went to Airbnbs. But when you go to Hawaii and stay at the Four Seasons, good luck trying to get in. Mm -hmm. They're booked forever, right? right? And even if you looked, we, what was it, two weeks ago here in the Treasure Valley? So we had, uh, Brittany Arneson was helping us with uh, some projects. We could not get her into a hotel because every hotel in the entire valley, 900,000 people, there was not a room. Yeah. Um, that's still shocking to me. It is right? insane. Um, and that's, we're still in COVID. So they'll disrupt, but it's not going away. Now, the next big thing is interest rates. Okay. I worry about interest rates. The reason why I worry about interest rates, um, interest rates are very correlated with the housing market. Storage is very correlated with the housing market. So if you're in an overbuilt market and interest rates rise and the housing market slows down, we have two different kinds of occupancy that I look at. We have our overall stable occupancy, but then we have this transitory occupancy. And that is short term because of housing change. We're selling, we're buying, right? But that occupancy today in the market cycle is very bolstered. So that could be a huge percentage of a lot of people's occupancy. So they think that they're full, but the quality is really, really poor. So if interest rates rise and that market has is overbuilt, they may not even know quite that they're overbuilt. And that starts to shrink. And that could make up 10, 15% of your occupancy. And so I worry about that correlation between storage, housing market, and interest rates. Interest rates rise, housing market shuts down because the housing market is already so expensive. What will that do? And I look at that at our properties and we analyze it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a really good point because I think a lot of times too, and just in relation to inflation too, it makes me think of this as well, where a lot of investors are like, oh, I love inflation, but then only to a certain degree, like you were talking about just recently where, yes. you know, it's like, okay, to a certain degree, that might be a good thing. But once it right. hits a certain 
level, then that's 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 a chain that you yeah. just described is exactly what happens. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a bad thing. It's a bad There's thing. too much of it. Um, this next question from Morgan, uh, LM11, actually ties really well into this perfect segue into the next comment here or question is, how do you know if a market is saturated with self-storage and where the need is? Perfect. This is the most important question. Everybody, listen, I, I don't know how many podcasts we've done. Um, on this, um, my book, um, Growing Wealth and Self-Storage, An Investor's Guide to Growing Wealth and Self-Storage. It's the blue one on Amazon. I talk about a lot about this. I have an entire YouTube video about this. I will always put more and more information out about this because this is the single most important question. Um, when we look at a viable market, um, there's two sides that come in, Okay. So we have square footage. So in storage, we analyze things by square footage on the market. So how many square footage is there per capita? Okay. Um, generally speaking, we're really looking, if we're trying to build, I want something with low square footage in the market. When I say low, I'm definitely talking about below 10 square feet per capita. Um, the reason being is in times like this, even in markets that have a lot of square footage per capita, but maybe really full, once again, when things slow down, that's when they get hit. And slowdowns will happen. It's going to happen. But if I'm building, I need to fill up. And if the slowdown happens, I don't have new tenants to fill up in. So the existing ones are going to probably be fine because they already had a tenant base. But me, I'm struggling to fill up. So I look at the total square footage per capita on the market. I analyze how much that market has grown, right? what that market's growth rate is, how much square footage has been put on. And then we look at the second part of that square footage, and that is the utilization. So we have square footage, how much? Then we have utilization, or how is it being used? This is a very large conversation, and I mm -hmm. could make an entire podcast out of this. So I'm going to give cliff notes here, or it'll be 30 minutes to hours. But you're looking at the individual units, which ones um, are in the market. I'm looking at their total occupancy. So how much availability is there? And then I'm looking at their historical. Like I want to see, okay, has have, have these units types, have they been getting increases? So what? how are they being used? Are they getting increases? What's the history of it? What's the demand of those individual units? This is how we get down to pricing structure. This is how we do value add. I'm looking for that spread. And in storage, a unit is a product that has a customer, has its own supply and demand. I say this all the time. Storage is a business. Look at the units like a product you're selling to the market. Analyze them all individually. Because you may have a facility that has 15 different types of units, right? Well, three of those units may have super high demand and the rest may not. Um, we bought a facility. This facility had, was huge. It was, I don't, I can't remember, 15 acres. Um, and it had hundreds of units and four of the buildings were five by fives. Well, the facility was at 60% um, occupancy. Not only were they not raising rates, the rates were half of the market and they couldn't even fill up. It was a perfect example that people would look at it and say the market was screwed up. Well, the market wasn't screwed up. The product selection was screwed up. Mm -hmm. So you're selling products and there's no customers to it. Right. We bought the facility. <laughs> we came and took all those buildings. We changed the product 
from 5i5s to other products that we analyzed had high demand. Months, we were over 90% full and we had risen all the rates. So that shows how one person analyzed a market, saw high, high demand, but still failed. Mm-hmm. That's really important to understand. Or people can analyze market and assume there's high demand, but there's another problem. They don't know what other product types are being built. They also don't know how how much square footage is coming on and how that will affect market. So when I look at building a facility, let's just use simple math. If I'm putting on 100,000 square feet, okay? Well, people walk around and they're like, and I hear this all the time. I talk to everybody and they're all full in the city, right? Then we start diving into the numbers. Okay, I want to build a 60,000 square foot facility. Okay, well, how many facilities are there? There's five. Well, what's the total square footage? It's 150,000 square feet. Okay, you're going to put on a 50% increase in the supply of that market almost. So you're increasing supply by 50%. Will that market really sustain that? How do you know? That's a good question. And how do you figure that out? So if I'm putting 100,000 square feet on the market, I don't want to be changing that market more than 15% of the inventory. Because Mm -hmm. now you start to guess because there's really no way that you can know. Mm-hmm, if I'm right. if I'm putting if I'm increasing the total inventory by 50-60%, you're guessing. You don't know if that is sustainable. At 15%, I can look at the variances and the occupancies and see the spread on each unit type and then I can say, "All right, so maybe for my 10 by 10s, that is there is actually um, I'm increasing that total market by 3%, but maybe pull up or drive up storage, I'm actually increasing that market by 20%. And I can start to analyze the effects of it. Where are rents going in those unit types? What is the true demand? Mm -hmm. It's a very dynamic question and it needs dynamic answers. Don't treat it simply, dive into the numbers, units, unit types, utilization, where rents are going, the history of it, and the effect that you will have or other players coming into the market will have on that market. For sure. And to get this information as far as square footage, things like that that are on the market, you can use tools like Radius Plus yep. that are out there, or you can do the you know the old school, like yes. you know brick and mortar way, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. We should coin a term for it. <laughs> um, the door knocking work things, you know hitting the pavement whatever <laughs> exactly. uh, so secret shopping is another huge way obviously gauging the demand way. getting out there talking to storage owner operators managers on site looking at these facilities looking at the product offerings and gauging that demand between the unit mixes what's popular what's not what's needed um, the other way too is you could honestly jump on you know google maps something like that mm-hmm. they've got a measurement tool on there to where you can measure gross square footage of a property or buildings or whatever, and a ratio for utilization of storage for, you know, let's say it's a, uh, a building that was converted, you're looking probably 60 to 65% of the square footage is usable square footage, rentable square footage, you'd call it. Or when you're looking at a storage facility that was built, you're looking closer to 70% utilization or rentable square footage of that property if you're you're looking at that so that's another tool that you could look at and say okay well you know there's in this three mile radius there's these many properties these facilities you know and they were all built uh looks like you know at 70 percent there's you know i don't know half a million square feet of storage here or a million square feet of storage here whatever and uh, you can kind of gauge it that way so that's more of a uh, they also have the self-storage almanac which you can look and it shows data now the bigger the market is 
right? The easier they can absorb and the easier things to do. The smaller the market is, the harder the data is to find mm -hmm. um, and the, the less reliable it is. So even yeah. data aggregators, right. they're not they're not 100%. And talk to cities. And talk to cities. Talk to cities because yeah. again- Future supply. Exactly. That current and future supply is super huge. Um, so that is all fantastic advice, AJ. Next question, minimum amount for investing. Newbie here. This is Smiley Highly. So really minimum amount for investing. This actually, I, I, a lot of people believe that in commercial real estate, you need millions, but that's not true. Um, that's not how we started, right? That's not how a lot of people started. And with storage, I know people that get started and they own literally like 15 doors, right? Mm -hmm. They yeah. own land and then maybe they built and they started out with, um, you know, 50,000 and they built $200,000 worth of assets. And then as they filled up, they refinanced and then they did what we call phasing. They built the next one and the next one. So the smaller markets you get in, the less amount of capital you need, right? Um, and that's important to know. And I, I, that's how I started. I went to really small markets where we could afford and we moved up from there as we learned, as we grew. So there's not a set thing. Um, obviously right now, self-storage is on a roar. Prices have never been more expensive. It's crazy what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, but that just means you need to change your area. If you want to buy in Manhattan, then okay, well then if you're only going to buy in Manhattan, you need to really adjust your expectations, <laughs> right? Raise but some money. if it's Pasigula, Mississippi, yeah. you're going to get something a lot cheaper. So, yeah. and so the big very markets dynamic. just go out. Very yeah. dynamic. Yeah, it's going to change a lot. Um, if, depending on what your, I mean, what your goals are, where you're at, and what you're wanting to do, uh, there's no set minimum amount. Uh, interest. Next next question is from Matthew C. Porter. Uh, it says interested in converting an old department store into a storage facility. Why? Why not? I don't know. We've we've maybe done something. Uh, yeah, like we've, we've done something similar. So, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. This is a great one. Now we're talking about the pros and cons of entering into the market with different uh, strategies. Um, conversions can be great. Um, and that's what we're talking about here. Converting one asset into self-storage into another asset. Mm -hmm. They can be great, but there's also huge downsides. Um, a lot of people assume, oh, there's a vacant building. That means this is perfect for storage. Go back to all the market things we talked about. And I, there's definitely a correlation with vacancy in buildings and demand. And I mean that usually in pricing and total demand. Um, so if there's a lot of vacant buildings, usually the market's not that good to begin with. Okay. Um, but also that usually means that either disposable incomes are low. Um, they've no one else can find another purpose of the building or capital doesn't want to go into the market. So you may not get as much return for that square footage, which then that means you have to actually buy the building. And then you also have to build storage in it. It's, it can be expensive, very expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're doing a build, it's a conversion of an office building and it's a maybe 13 million. Yeah. So all in cost, we're looking close to that. Yeah. yeah. 13 million. Um, very expensive. Why we chose this location. Demand was high. We got the product in a, like the blip, right? It was like right in the months of COVID buyers backed <laughs> out, perfect. prices crashed. We picked it up. And it was a, a good opportunity, um, but it's expensive. We have to 
fix the building, you have to buy the building, you have HVACs, you have to do big work in it, the and demo. buildings can come with problems. So you oh, can dude. buy mm -hmm. problems. So I look for buying conversions to get me into locations that I normally couldn't get into that have areas of super high demand. That's why I like them. As in, I can buy this building and convert it, and I couldn't go buy bare land. I couldn't go do those things in that market. This is the only way I could get into the market. And this is a really hot market. That's when it gets good. So you have your cost of um, the actual units. So building out the storage facility, you have the cost of buying the building, but then you also have the cost of getting the building up to uh, speed to actually house it. And you have to have a very good grasp of all those costs because they are generally speaking um, higher than normal in markets that are really good. So in markets that are really good and drive really high rental prices, it's not cheap. Um, so it's kind of some of my thoughts. On that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, good answers for sure. I'm going to tie these two questions together from Melody Ray 03 and Dear Adulthood. Uh, one says, and I love these questions, how do you make it passive income if it's a business? And the other question is, how hands-on is the management? These totally go hand in hand. So. Yep. Um, this is a fantastic question. So... When I look at anything, there, there is this idea that, oh, I want a truly passive income, right? I, first of all, I do not believe that when you are doing it yourself, that you should have expectations of it being like truly passive. Like you don't need mm -hmm. to work or you don't need to do it. Now, I'm going to talk about ways you mitigate, reduce work, and create passive income through storage. Now, active managers have an edge in the market. Competition is nice, but we compete. I want tenants and I want the highest paying ones. And good operators get the highest paying one and get higher, highest yield. A lot of people getting into the market assume that, oh, whatever, you know, operate, whatever this facility down the street B is doing, I can just purely do that. That's not how it works. If they're a better operator than you, you actually can't. They'll have an edge on the market. So we do a comparison of competitors in the market to figure out pricing, like can, where are they, where they're not. And when you look at how much work it goes into it, when you're dealing with big facilities, there's a lot of work in management. The smaller the facility goes, obviously the less work you need. Now, automation is a huge thing. I believe in it so strongly that we rolled out the first keyless entry system in the nation with Travis Morrow from Store Local. We both rolled out our facilities, um, I think in the same month, and we were the first people, people to do it because we believe in this. Um, and small facilities, I don't believe are even economical to do without automation. Automation does not mean manless though. We have to understand, there's no such thing as a manless facility. Something, Somebody has to work on that facility. Once a tenant moves and leaves, you have to have somebody clear it out, get it ready, put it back on the market. That's the problem, I think, with that whole entire thing where everyone's thinking, and I can't remember who we were talking about with this recently. It might have been Lance, Lance's episode, where we we're talking about how people think, they only think of how people are going to get into the facility. Okay, yes. like how do they move in? Like totally automated. How do they do that? Like, okay, cool. You got that figured out. What happens when they're moving out? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's where you need people, or, dude. Or don't move yeah. out. They won't leave. Yeah, no kidding. So now yeah. you have to uh, actually auction their stuff off. Yep. Who's doing that? How do you get the stuff out? How do you clean it out? Right? So there's no such thing as a manless facility, even in small facilities. In fact, the less presence that somebody has, the better buy it is for me every time. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at what you need to do, you limit the amount of hours that you need to spend through automation. You can get regional managers or you can get a lot less work on that property. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the same with basically any real estate asset, or you can also get a third party manager to do it. Right. So you can literally just pay somebody else to run it and you just get checks in the mail. You have to pay them for it. It's expensive. Right. Um, and generally speaking, that most good third-party managers won't even do small facilities, right? And their costs are obstructive. Um, you don't really learn. They keep the secrets to themselves for the most part. And so it can be harder to grow in it. So it's this idea of saying, how much do I want to be in this facility? How much do I want to own or this industry? How much do I want to own this asset? What is my future in it? and what work needs to be put into it. Mm -hmm. If you want to go truly passive, you just become a limited partner and that's with somebody else dude, that's doing all exactly. of it. That's yep. how you create true passive income. But yes, self-storage is a business and those that are running it to run a better business have higher yield. Mm -hmm. No, 100%. Um, let's jump into the next question. All good stuff there. And that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if you're looking for something totally passive, CNLP, like, yep. don't even worry about it. Else. Yeah. Do let somebody else do all of it for you. Uh, which option is better, insulated storage or non-insulated? This is from Manitowatha Wit North, whatever. I don't know. Sorry, Canadian, butchered that. Sure. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> when I when, when we oh White North, sorry, that's white, what it is. Yeah, still Manitoba Canadian. White North. That's definitely Canadian. So for our <laughs> Canadian friends and all others. Um, definitely that, insulated in Canada, right? Definitely insulated in Canada, <laughs> definitely insulated in, in Arizona. So generally speaking, this is how I look at it. When looking at the pros and cons, that depends on the market. We talk about unit selection. Some markets have a lack of climate controlled, so that's a better product to put on the market. That's a better product to buy because you can raise prices. We've done this recently. We bought a facility that their indoor climate controlled prices were the same as their um, drive up prices, even though the market... In the market, climate-controlled units were running like twice as much. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy turnaround for us, right? So you got to look at the demand. What do people want? There's a lot of markets that, for example, multi-story, indoor multi-story facilities. People don't want to go up three stories. They won't actually sell as well. They actually want drive up or they want bottom floor climate-controlled. And every, the higher you go, the more you have to reduce it. So it's about the supply on the market. What are people achieving from it? And what do the customers want in that market? Uh, if you're in Arizona, people obviously want climate controlled. It's 120 degrees, right? Some amazing people live there. And, you know, I'm very sensitive to heat. And if you go into the, you know, great white, white north, um, then when you're up in Canada, it's negative, you know, 20 degrees. So yeah. you're going to have extremes where they're absolutely going to be more of the norm. Um, but then when you get into more rural things, the utilization of storage changes. So in metro areas, the people that are storing are protecting things like art, um, electronics, because they don't have enough space in maybe their apartment, right? Or their home. When you get into more rural areas, people are using it 
more for, uh, we're just storing Christmas stuff, everything. It's not, not nearly as important to us or they're working out of it. They don't want climate controlled. They want drive up. They want access, you know, weekly or daily. Um, so you need to be aware of those needs and then you're matching the product with the demand. Mm-hmm. Love it. Uh, I at Lockwood, whoever you are, you've got some good questions because this other question that I see on here that we definitely want to answer is uh, this question that says, do you think a newbie investor can get directly into commercial and skip residential properties? That's what I did. And absolutely, yes. In fact, it's funny when I got started in, in real estate, it was in the early 2000s and everybody I knew, my friends, everybody were becoming millionaires because they were all buying homes and the equity was going up and they were all becoming millionaires. And I coming from a sales background and a cash flowing business background that didn't, I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me because I couldn't f- figure out, you know, I didn't really get the whole equity and that's how you were actually making money. I was looking at cash flow. So I couldn't get into that market. Right. And so we ended up buying storage facilities because we could measure the cash flow. But I always knew when you grow up, you don't really make money in storage, right? You make all your money in single family homes and multifamily. Well, then the 2008 real commercial. came around. Yeah. <laughs> real estate. 2008 came around and that all kind of came to fruition, right? Um, so for me, bypassing that was a huge mm-hmm. lesson. And I think absolutely there's no reason that you need to start in single family homes yeah. as an investor. No, it's not, there's no rule. There's no yeah. reason for it. If you want to, do it. If you don't, don't. Skip it. Save Skip your it. time, dude. Um, that kind of ties into that. Uh, this next question, Reuter44 asked why you chose self-storage over larger multifamily. And I think you pretty much just answered that. Well, another thing though, re- really reason why is because, because self-storage is a business, I can have more effect on the revenue. So I have more levers that I can pull to change the revenue, which means I can change the valuation of the asset class. It acts like a business. I can add products. I can change product types. I can do dynamic pricing. I can do intense marketing. Whereas in general, same amount of quality, a two bedroom, uh, one bathroom on one side of the street and the other are going for the exact same price. That's not true in storage. So storage gave me more opportunity to create income and wealth through actively changing the revenue and valuation. So that's why we stuck with it and that's why we like it. I like it. Um, Joe Salzilami. Sazalami, uh, what is the typical one year to year three vacancy after building? I think this is a great question. This is a great question. Um, you should always plan on a three-year fill-up, but you should definitely have an idea of how you're going to get that fill-up. Um, and I have seen it all over the board. I have never had an asset that took longer than a year for me to fill up, but I knew very much what I was doing before I was building, and I had a huge strategy product market fit because I had been in storage for a while. Um, and that will happen. That won't always be for me. Right. So I, I'm not always going to fill up a facility in under a year. That's not true. That won't happen. So I plan on three years. There's recessions. We have bad things happen in the marketplace and it's very dependent on the supply and demand in your marketplace. So I've known facilities that haven't filled up in three years. Right. So if you have a good operator, and you have a really high demand market, a couple years is, is probably reasonable. I'd still plan on three, right? But if you get a bad market, a bad operator, it can be a long time. 
mm-hmm. and you need to make sure you have those things aligned because that fill up rate makes makes or breaks you. And a lot of people build it and they have this idea with storage is build it and they will come. Um, and that works when times are really good, but times aren't always really good. And a lot of people get caught with their shorts down. And we bought a lot of assets from builders who did that and they never filled up. We bought and turned them around. So you need to measure, you need to have a plan and it depends on the market and the operator. Love it. Next question from Sam Cannon Jr. says, what's the most challenging aspect of the process? This is again in regards to our statesman conversion project that we got going on, that large project. Yeah, really what that comes down to is there's so many unknowns, right? There's just so many unknowns. Like you, you just don't know. We're talking about a building that has three stories, industrial, office buildings, warehousing. It's a huge property. And when you get into conversions, there's always surprises. There's always things you don't know. The other one that we did that was a bankrupt um, Kmart, you'd assume would be very simple. It's just a flipping box. Mm-hmm. Well, two years into yeah. it, gas lines had been cracked and were leaking that we had no idea about. We had to replace um, HVAC systems that, and we, there's there's all these things, right? And with that office building and with conversions, that's the biggest challenge is trying to build in the fact that you don't know everything and you have to be okay with that. And you have to have a product and investment strategy that can change as you move along. So when we first rolled it out and got investors, we had whatever it was, 800 units. By the time we were done, we'd increase the cost by a few million, but we'd also increase the units by hundreds of units. Mm -hmm. We found out better ways to use them. We also found problems we had to get over. And you need to realize that going into big projects, your margin for error is much bigger. Yeah, yeah, it needs to. It needs to. And if you (laughs) are running a deal that is very close, you can get into trouble. For sure. that margin of safety needs to be big. You need to have it built in. Touching on that, contingencies are a huge thing that you need to include in your underwriting for developments, obviously. and in any project, but especially developments, conversions, and especially conversions, I would strongly suggest you have a larger contingency than not. More know, funds. Yeah, yeah. I know that um, generally about 10% is is what you see, but yeah. you would, I mean, on the Statesman project, you'd probably want like, yeah, a lot more than that. More. <laughs> even too. All even, of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Even when you're looking at fill-up rates. So we have contingency, then we also fund in the deal a buildup time. So like mm-hmm. we have almost a million dollars just for fill up. So we fund for full three years out, even though we don't believe it'll take that long because of this location and supply and demand. But then that money too, though, we also have earmarked where, all right, we're going to need contingency. So we double up, right? We make mm-hmm. sure we have a big margin of safety that we can change right? and we can do things, which helped us out. Exactly. Again, that mitigating risk, you know, you're not going to eliminate anything, but just doing everything you can to eliminate it. Uh, One of the other questions was how long it took for permits to get through for that project as well. Um, And that's kind of another challenging aspect that I would say part of that is when you have cities that are backed up, that don't have personnel, that uh, everything is just so busy, everything going on, you just have no control over how fast something's going to get permitted, what that total project timelines even going to look like. Yeah. You can have an idea 
but you're not going to have like, oh, for sure, I'm going to get my permits by this time. Everything's going to go fine. It's going to be approved. There's no issues. There's no changes. Like, and I mean, by that point, when you're submitting for permit, whether it's your demo or your build or any of that, I mean, you've already spent tens of thousands of dollars to get to that point. Yeah. Um, and that's something that is, it's going to be dynamic and changing from yeah. each and every each project. County, and each, each city. city. <laughs> it's just, um, some yeah. don't care what you do. Others don't want storage no matter what. I would plan on, I mean, at least six months Yeah. for permits. I mean, that's, that's doing well for a lot of yeah. people. And especially right now in the market, there's so much going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, All right, let's do... Maybe two more. Let's yeah. Let's do a few more of these. I want to get a couple really good ones yeah, tagged we, down again. This you guys once like again so asked so many questions, hard. and I I did on so while you're finding those a uh, few other good ones that we had because there were so many. Um, on my Instagram, I do like stories where I I say you know ask questions, and then I make videos just answering questions. That's where we get this. That's yeah. where we get other ones. So if you're following on there, I, I I'm gonna try to do this like almost weekly. All right, dude, let's do these. Um, I want to start, uh, I, w- I want to get into toy storage, quote, uh, quote, yes. toy storage, yep. RVs, trailers, boats. Do you have a good place to start? Yeah. So um, when you're, when you're dealing with like drive up, like boats, RVs, snowmobiles, four wheelers, all that kind of stuff, uh, these are bigger units. Um, you may do covered open parking. Generally speaking, those cities are going to fight you more anything that can be seen. Um, also, generally speaking, you need to understand that they achieve a lower revenue per square foot. So a whole entire facility that is all RV boat parking is going to generate a lot less revenue. Um, and with that said, we're building that kind of asset type. So we're, we're building a multi-story indoor climate controlled with a huge amount, over 50,000 square feet of boat RV parking. And that is principally because of the individual location and the need for it in that market. Mm-hmm. And we can charge, you know, 450 bucks a door on that. But these are large spaces. You also have the problem with traffic, flow, access, exit, lights, roads. You got to make sure those things are right. Because if not, you're going to build it. And it's not, people can't access it very well for RVs and then they don't even want to rent from you. Right. Well, that's another hurdle too, is working with the cities and and so forth and ensuring that uh, whatever expectations they have that you're going to be able to actually meet and coordinate and get done. That's huge for sure. And two, I mean, there's been massive demand because of people buying Mm -hmm. um, so many toys. So, and there's not a lot of space because of the, the, it tends to be um, revenue prohibitive. Um, so I like it. It's good. Um, but you do need to know that those units, th- like I say, things that have wills, people can leave very easily. Mm-hmm. And we see larger fluctuations because people are like, oh, I'm taking my RV all summer. Well, I don't want to pay you. So they stop paying for the summer. So we'll see big fluctuations in rentals depending on season. Um, and when people leave and come out, we know that during the fall, we're going to have more of a fill up. Um, so it's, it's kind of a different animal and you just need to be aware of that. We did a whole entire podcast on this with, um, Scott Ramser, uh, four or five podcasts ago, go check it out. And he is like the master at that product type. The man. All right. Last two questions. The tech girl asked what a person should know before starting self-storage. Okay. What you should know. All everything. Right. Yeah. Everything. But but really honestly, 
And I, and I, I'm never going to ever stop harping on this. This was my strategy when we got started and it has carried us through supply and demand are the number one thing. The reason why is the higher the demand, the more I don't need to know to be successful. Mm-hmm. So the you will never know everything until you start. And the higher the demand is, the more mistakes I can make, I can screw up and the market forgives me right now. If you're in a really competitive market with lower occupancies, the market's not forgiving and you can't just throw anything out and you can't screw up as much. So when you're starting out, if you get demand right and you find someone that has really high demand and you know that, right, you can figure everything else out. Mm-hmm. But yep. if that's off everything else, you still may not make it work. So Focus, I mean, really 80% on that and everything else will play in and you can learn as you go Mm -hmm. from there. 100%. Last question we're going to tackle here today. I wanted to save this one for last. It's a good question, AJ, uh, from Caroline. It says, educational resources, books you may have to use uh, to prepare for commercial real estate like this. Thank you, Connor. That was a layup right there. Did you see that? Okay. We've got our book. I'm, I'm, so. <laughs> I'm Vanna Whiting AJ's book right That's now for right. everybody listening to the uh, podcast. <laughs> so um, I do have the self store, uh, the investor's guide to growing wealth in self storage, the step-by-step playbook um, by AJ Osborne. Go to Amazon, look up AJ Osborne. It's blue. You can also go to the website, selfstorageincome.com. We have resources there. YouTube. Um, if you go to YouTube, self storage income, this podcast, our events, we're trying to put out as absolutely as much as we can. Obviously, you have to pay for the book because uh, Amazon's got it. They, I have to pay them. Um, but other than that, you know, everything's for free. You can go to all those resources and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm putting out constant. I'm putting threads on Twitter of what we're seeing in the market, how we're doing it. And on Instagram, I make videos of current projects, what's happening in the market, how to, and answering questions. So that's all going on all the time and any of those resources will help you. Fantastic. I love it, man. Is there anything else we want to tackle before we wrap up today? This nope. is a fantastic episode. Happy Super 100th excited. episode. Yeah. Thanks so much <laughs> so, again, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everybody. We all appreciate this. it. We'll catch you next time. See ya.